Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. The first post-mortem of the 2016 presidential election is out, and it's getting a lot of play. Today, we talk about efforts to rehash the 2016 campaign and what we can learn going forward. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today in the Pearls, we're going to discuss the first 100 days of President Trump's administration, the French elections, and the need to fund the government by April 28th. And in the suit, we'll talk about the new book, Shattered, on what went wrong in the Clinton campaign. And in the heels, as always, we'll discuss what's on our minds other than politics. So I think we're recording on day 93 of the Trump presidency. We're coming right up on that first 100-day mark which always prompts a healthy discussion of what's been accomplished so far and what has not. I'm going to go with nothing. Nothing has been accomplished. Is that Do you feel like that's unfair? I think that's probably a little unfair. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's been a tumultuous hundred days. I think certainly I would prefer the government to be in a much more robust working order than it is now. I regret much of what has happened in the first hundred days, but I don't think it's been, I don't think it's nothing, right? And it might be helpful to just go through what President Trump said he was going to do in his first hundred days. I remember days. that he, I haven't looked at the contract recently, but I do remember he was immediately going to get term limits, which there hasn't been a peep about that, just as I predicted. That is the first thing first on thing his on the contract oh, yeah. with I the remember. American voter, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. constitutional amendment for term limits on all members of Congress. Nothing on that. He How hard do you done... think Mitch McConnell laughed in his face? Oh, no kidding. He has done his second through six items on cleaning up, quote, corruption and special interest collusion in Washington, D.C. Now, I think it is laughable 
that this is his definition of corruption and conclusion collusion in Washington, D.C., given all of the conflicts of interest that we're living with. But he has done a hiring of a hiring freeze on federal employees, a requirement that every for every new federal regulation to must be eliminated, a five year ban on lobbying. So the things in this list that he's done by executive order, he was able to check off. He also promised seven actions to protect American workers. Of those, he has done three of the seven. Five actions to restore security and the constitutional role of law. And he has done three of those five. So, you know, by his own standards, he's not hitting it out of the park. And I think that for me, what's so troubling is that we're a hundred days in and we still have so many vacancies and important federal positions. And we have not one indication that our legislature is going to be functional for the next four years. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't really know the history of the hundred days and why it's such a big dang deal, but I do think, I think, you know, Maybe the narrative and the number might be arbitrary, but I do think you have a finite amount of time, that sort of honeymoon phase where nobody has, um, you haven't screwed anything up yet to get some real stuff done. And I think he's wasted that. Well, he has screwed things up, right? I mean, it hasn't been smooth sailing by any definition. And he came in there with a deficit. So he even had a shorter, like a sort of higher stakes period in which to get accomplished because people were so, I mean, he had such high negatives before he even got in there. And those numbers haven't moved. I mean, he's still underwater on approval ratings. I think that he's right that this is kind of a foolish deadline, which begs the question of why his campaign promised all these things in the first hundred days. I also understand that once you're in the office, you're going to have a different perspective than you had before you sought the office out. I hate that he always throws somebody under the bus on mistakes, though, because, you know, this weekend he's been saying 100 days is a stupid deadline. It's meaningless. We've done a lot. The press is going to, you know, kill us on it no matter what. And also this contract with the American voter is something somebody else came up with. That's the part that bugs me the most. Like, take responsibility for your team and move forward. That's not how he wins, Beth. That's not how he wins. Oh, it drives me crazy. I mean, I think the thing to do would be to say, you know, we had hoped to accomplish more in the first hundred days. The world has given us some events that were far beyond our control. We have not been able to focus as myopically on domestic policy as we had hoped to because foreign policy has taken precedent. And that's where we are right now. We're going to continue to work hard for you. I mean, there are lots of ways to talk about this that don't sound irresponsible. Well, there are other elections. We, so we did an election episode on Friday and we didn't even get to France. And so the French have voted and we have two, uh, contenders who have emerged for the French runoff, which will be in June. Uh, Macron, who is the independent, he's widely characterized as the moderate candidate. I want to be careful because I don't think that these definitions stack up very well against American politics, but he is categorized as a moderate versus Marine Le Pen, who is the far right French nationalist candidate. Um, I saw some really interesting things about how she was sort of embracing her status as a female candidate and softening her image, which considering her party is considered so, you know, racist and hard right. I'm sure that helped her. It's been interesting. I've heard a number of commentators say recently that Le Pen in some ways is a little bit more frightening than Donald Trump because she has such a gentle and kind of sophisticated way about her. It masks the ugliness of a lot of her positions. And I wondered for some time if the conversations about that ugliness were overstated. The more I learn, the more I think, no, they are not overstated. I mean, she's very blatant about she doesn't want people wearing hijabs or um, turbans in France because that's not very French. I mean, it's it is very, very xenophobic. Yeah. And, I, you know, this the they had another a terror attack. Um in Paris, which 
I don't know. It's it's and they also have just a lot of candidates generally. There's like 11 people or something, right? Right. And so now they're down to the two. And there is conversation about Russian interference in this election. I was spending a lot of time on Twitter because I spent six hours in the car today and noticing how many accounts from Twitter that were formerly like pro-Trump propaganda accounts are now pro-Le Pen propaganda Mm. accounts. And they all have avatars that look like um, the kind of models that are hired to sell beer. You know what I mean? Like it's very, um, it's obviously a very coordinated propaganda campaign. Now I have no idea from where that originates specifically, but you can absolutely see the same kind of themes emerging in this election that you saw in ours. Okay, so we'll continue to keep an eye on the French election as it progresses into the month of June. A sooner deadline than that is April 28th, and that is the date by which we need Congress to fund the federal government. Yikes. I don't know about this, guys. I'm a little worried about another another uh, conflict between the Trump administration and the Freedom Caucus. I just think that the Trump White House is going to blink on this, don't you? How embarrassing if you have a Republican control of all branches of government to not be able to get the government funded. I can't imagine that that's, that's going to happen. I don't know. I mean, I, they haven't been able to hold their ground on much else. But if the Freedom Caucus, I mean, maybe this is they decide this is their chance. I, I don't know. Well, the most contentious issue seems to be the border wall. Because the White House is being very adamant about wanting to see dollars in this budget for the border wall, even though, you know, Mexico will eventually pay for it in some form. That's what. Of course they will. Of course they will. But they want some dollars to get started on it. And Reince Priebus today said on Meet the Press that he wants to also see a massive increase. That's a quote, a massive increase in military spending. And so I don't know how this is going to go, except that I I do think at the end of the day, the Trump administration is going to have to take what it can get out of this Congress. Did you see where Mick Mulvaney, who I think should not be allowed to speak to reporters anymore, said that they're talking about like a dollar for dollar. If you give us a dollar for the border wall, we'll give you a dollar towards funding the Obamacare subsidies. What? I thought that was a pretty weird and gross way to talk about health care in our country. Yeah. Don't worry, everybody who's depending on these subsidies for your health and well-being. We're just using them as bargaining chips to get bigger guns. And, and we're going to guys, we're going to talk about the wall in the same context as health care. And we're going to make the priority the wall. I mean, look, I believe in border security. I don't think that it's wrong to want to make sure that we are securing that border appropriately. I think the wall is the most ludicrous idea I've ever heard of to get that accomplished. And I think it would be a massive waste of taxpayer funds to start building that, especially when the infrastructure in the rest of our country is crumbling. I would much rather see a massive influx of federal dollars into bridges and roads and light rail than this wall. So if the Republicans are going to start spending money, like let's spend it in good places. That's my perspective. Yeah, I agree. So I don't know what will happen with the budget talks, but um, that is something to definitely keep an eye on because I I'm worried that we're going to see like short term resolutions to kick the can instead of actually addressing this in a more. I don't know why. This con- I don't know why you feel this way that Congress has been so high functioning so far. <laughs> well, speaking of, do you have a compliment for the other side this week? Yeah, I was going to compliment my representative, Comer. He's new to the gig, and he has been going on a lot of tours around. He went on like a 10-city town hall tour and met with a lot of people. And so I I like to praise listening among members of Congress, and it seemed especially appropriate that I should praise my own. So good job, Representative Comer. I think that's great. I figured you would praise Joni Ernst. Did you hear Joni Ernst's comments about President Trump this week? No. She did a town hall in which she conducted herself in, I thought, a very admirable way. And she's not like one of my favorites, but I was really impressed with her in her town hall. She was calm. People were not screaming. She was taking questions and answering them thoughtfully. And she said 
she wishes President Trump would stay in the White House more often instead of traveling to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, she was quite critical of the administration in a number of ways, and it was kind of a remarkable thing to watch, especially because she did it. She she talked with her constituents like you would hope town halls would go. Awesome. Yeah, so that was good to see. Well, there's a double compliment. I'll take that one, too. My compliment for the other side this week goes to Dick Durbin. I have been watching with great interest this conversation about Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez and sort of Mm -hmm. the litmus testing of I almost said, can I not compliment the other side and just scold my side for a change this week? (laughs) Well, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this. I'll get my quick compliment out of the way, but I, I am fascinated to hear your thoughts on this. I appreciated... So, so the scandal, if you haven't been watching this closely, is that Bernie Sanders uh, endorsed a Democratic candidate who is pro-life. And Dick Durbin's comment about this is, you can believe what you believe, and there is room for you in the Democratic Party. What we need from our candidates is to be committed to upholding the rule of law and upholding Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was... A great way to talk about this. If someone is personally pro-life, there is still room for you in this party. But our party does have this position on what that means from a legislative and judicial aspect. So I, I appreciated Dick Durbin's, I thought, abundantly reasonable comments. Yeah, that's great. And I heard uh, I think the the head of NARAL tweeted a bunch of stuff and said, like, we don't care if you're pro-life. Look at Tim Kaine. But you have to uphold like basically the same sort of argument. Like you still will respect. The fact that you don't get to make that decision for other women or, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought that was really good. I just, you know, look, I'm not a big Bernie Sanders fan. (laughs) I've never been a big Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's not true. I used to really like Bernie Sanders back in the day when he used to go on the Diane Reem show and sort of like be the crazy progressive uncle that just says what you're thinking. But he's not a Democrat. He's never been a Democrat. And so I don't really appreciate this whole like trot him out and make him the head of the Democratic Party situation. And when he's standing with the chair and he won't even say he's a member of the Democratic Party really bothers me. And his, you know, while I prefer sort of the Howard Dean approach to this and the 50 states and we're going to include people as opposed to his like just ignore all identity politics or any issues regarding identity politics or it's not even that he ignores them. He pretends like they're unimportant. And that really bothers me. Well. In the suit today, we are going to talk about the Democrats quite a bit, I think, as we get into rehashing the campaign because of the new book that's out about it. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought this is just how time feels now and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to. Or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So Sarah, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes are out with the first of what I'm sure will be many books about what happened in 2016. And their book, Shattered, is about the Clinton campaign. And I've noticed from your social media posts that you probably already have a lot of feelings about this. Oh, so many feelings. Well, you know, these people wrote a really sort of glowing book, I think, about her time um, as Secretary of State. So they had the connections. They talked to a lot of people. Um, it's not a flattering portrait of the campaign, obviously. And there's been some pushback. I think, um, I don't remember who I saw on Twitter, one of the staffers sharing like, you know, pictures of the, of two staffers like hugging or laughing. He's like, this is, these is, this picture is of us fighting nonstop, you know, like pushing back, like this was a positive experience for us. And especially if you listen to the uh, Hillary Clinton podcast, the staffers just like, sound like so happy and into it and passionate about their work. And I know they were. But the um, sort of take a lot of the takeaways of the book, which I have not read, is that it was sort of the same mistakes from 2008 played out all over again, which really pains me deeply because it seemed like they were doing things differently and that there were, you know, uh, uh, not enough chiefs or maybe too many chiefs. I don't know. What are some of the things you're, you've been gleaning from the write ups of the book? Well, I have read that there was a focus on 2008 in a way that caused some decisions. It was almost like, okay, what we did in 2008 didn't work, so let's do the opposite. So some uh, cutbacks on campaign spending. It sounds like mm. there was sort of... Yeah, because Mo- I'm reading a lot that Robbie Mook was like very tight-fisted with the cash. Yeah, and that kept them from spending some time in states that turned out to be really important. It sounds like as she processed 2008... Clinton thought that Obama's team just did a better job than her team, right? And so what could they replicate in the Obama run as opposed to what Mm -hmm. they did in the 2008 run? And there are some more kind of salacious details about her going back to look at emails from her 2008 staff to see who was the most loyal to her and who wasn't. I don't really care about that stuff. I mean, what I think is more interesting is what can be learned going forward here? And I thought Matt Tabby from Rolling Stones summed up something pretty interesting. He said, the real protagonist of this book is a Washington political establishment that has lost the ability to explain itself or its motives to people outside the beltway. In fact, it shines through in the book that the voters need to understand why this or that person is running for office is viewed in Washington as little more than annoying than an annoying problem. And the book that spends, is 10 kinds of true. Yeah. 10 kinds of true. The book spends a lot That's of time exactly what it feels like. on apparently on like what, how they struggle to articulate a rationale for Hillary Clinton's candidacy and were annoyed that they had to. And I think the broader point, I mean, 
taking this away from just Hillary Clinton, I think that broader point is is universally true. Right. Right. And it's well, and I think it's a couple things. Uh, this is so painful for me. But, uh, you know, I think that's true. You know, I was livid after the campaign when they kept you kept reading these write ups where Bill Clinton was like, please, please, can we do this? And it would say the word from Brooklyn. And I just wanted to scream like you can't live in Brooklyn and Washington, D.C. and just fly across the country once every four years and think you're going to get how to connect with everybody else. And it's really infuriating. I think um, both sides do it, but I think Democrats probably do it worse than Republicans. And the other thing is, I just feel like. What bothers me a lot when I read these write ups is and it bothered me after the election. But look, you know, I didn't see the forest through the trees either, but it's not my job. But the idea that she got sideswiped in Michigan and totally surprised during the primary by Bernie Sanders and couldn't see the writing on the wall and didn't spend more time in Michigan and Wisconsin when she'd taken such a beating in the primary. I just don't get it. Let me ask you this question, and I mean this in earnest, and I mean this as a person who would vastly prefer to have Hillary Clinton in the White House than Donald Trump right now, okay? What would she have said if she had spent more time in those states that would have mattered? Because that, to me, seems it, to be well, the central theme. I don't mean theme. just her doing speeches. I mean actual organizing on the ground. They were neglecting that, too. Yeah. And I think there was a case to be made. And, and I do think, yes, it is easy to take this sort of very cynical view and look at Hillary Clinton and being like, "Ugh, she's only running because she's part of the establishment. She wants more power and look at Donald Trump and say, he doesn't have, he's rich. He doesn't have any reason to run except he really wants to help us. You know, like it's, it's sort of an easy emotional reaction to have to the two of them. And I'm not sure they ever, they never got past that. But I do think oh, it's just so there's so many layers to it, because I do think some of that is it's hard to explain. It's it's hard anytime you're a woman to explain why you want to have power or additional leadership roles, because our society says women should want those things. So I think there is gender component to this. And I just think they, they put all their chips on the wrong square. I'm upset that nobody listened to Bill Clinton. <laughs> I don't know. It's just painful. Here's here's my takeaway. After thinking about this for a long time and then reading about this book, I have read so many think pieces on why Clinton lost. It's Comey. It's gender. It's that the campaign didn't have a rationale. It's that they didn't spend in the right states and organize properly. It's that she didn't have a message. You know, it's it's all these things. It's that the coverage was unfairly skewed. Right. I think the truth is it's all these things. In a, in proportions that we're never going to fully tease out. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we really need to have a conversation about as a voting public at this point is what we actually care about in these campaigns. There's all kinds of discussion right now about how people are getting more politically engaged. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it's true in a lot of ways. I also wonder if we're getting engaged in ways that feel like fads. And in ways that aren't particularly constructive. And that's why I don't really want to go through all of the infighting in the Clinton campaign. I also am not that interested in the infighting in the Trump White House. I think there's always infighting. And I don't want my political perspective to be about the soap opera of these people. (laughs) You know, it's like, how do we keep our eyes on the ball of actual policy and actual values that move things forward? I think that what you see when you take a look at the Clinton campaign, is that we do expect what we want is a charismatic, likable figure with just enough drama to keep us interesting, but not too too much drama because that becomes scandal. And we want the person to be so relatable that they can sit down at any table across America and explain things to people in language that they understand and that feels good to them. But we also want them to be PhD level conversant in every issue across the globe. Like we are, we're just out of the realm of human beings that exist. And this gets, well, that's not true. We want Barack Obama. I want Barack it's Obama. Not, though. You want Barack Obama, but lots of America <laughs> found Barack Obama aloof too, right? Like even he, I think if he was running again, 
Because of the way media coverage is skewing and the way the public is looking at things, we would hear much more about internal tensions between Valerie Ooh, Jarrett I don't, I and disagree. David Axelrod. I think they... I disagree. They, I mean, they, listen, it was, he was president less than, uh, what, about 100 days ago? And you never heard that That's stuff. That's not true. Because... I read about Valerie Jarrett all the time. It is, it is more magnified with Trump, but I think that's because Trump is a, it, he wants it to be magnified, right? Like that's the show. And it wasn't the show. No, with I mean, Obama. I think that is the default behavior because Clinton had a lot of that drama too. But I do think you have to acknowledge that the Barack, that the Obama White House, no drama Obama, he didn't get that nickname for nothing. Like they did something right. I don't even remember the name of his press secretary. I don't even remember who his last chief of staff was. And I talk about politics on this podcast and have been doing it for a while. Like they did something right. They knew that we can't give them a single, we can't give anybody a single little teeny tiny scrap of anything to hang criticism or their hat on. It has to be all about the ideas. It has to be all about the policy. It cannot be about us. And I mean, there was no scandal coming out of their family. There was no scandal coming out of that staff. Like, it's not like it's unachievable. They did it. I think that they also got a lot. I, I agree that they did a lot of things right. And I've talked on this podcast before about how I think the Obama family handled that obligation of living in the White House so beautifully. So I'm not trying to take anything away from what you just said. I will also say, you know, I think that the press liked the Obamas in a, and, and certainly his candidacy was fascinating to them. But that's part of the thing, right? Like, do we have to have the first African-American candidate to, in, you know, to pull us in in the way the press was pulled in by President Obama and his family? Do like I think we're at this point now where we feel like everything has to be enormously special, but the people involved can't think it's too special. Right. Or that makes them too focused on history. We saw a little bit of that with the coverage of Clinton. And, you know, there's too much emphasis on being the first woman, whatever. I just think we're creating a trap for people that's impossible. Who wants this kind of scrutiny at this point, except somebody like Donald Trump who thrives on it? That's true. I mean, he is he's sort of a, a weird gift, though, because if you're a person who's like worried, I have to be this super educated, massive elite. I mean, no, you don't look at Donald Trump. <laughs> but how do you get super to... experienced? I guess what I'm thinking about is. Are we still a citizen government? I'm just not sure that we are. And that no, concerns me. Well, I'll tell you, I'm reading our current book club book, The uh, Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution, and it's so good. And his argument is our constitutional system was built on economic equality, and we do not have good. We have good checks and balances within our government, but we do not have good checks and balances for preventing um, those with more economic power from continue to gain that power and exploit the government to continue to gain more and more power. It's a really good book. And it's really, um, he makes a great argument for that. And, you know, look, it's true. It, I think that people just get access to the levers of power and that, that whole thing about like sort of figuring out the, how to convince the voters is just like this annoying thing you have to do every four years is sort of indicative of that, right? Like, we don't really care about you. We don't really, because we, we are not you. We are different from you. That Right? Like, there's two different groups here. The ones who live in Washington, D.C. and New York City and occupy worlds most of us will never understand or visit. Or it's like a different galaxy when you're that rich and powerful. And, you know, the rest of us who they have to sort of deign to try to convince every four years. So how do we fix that? <laughs> Revolution. Sorry. No, that's probably not. now the FBI is going to start listening to our podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, you just told us you weren't a big Bernie Sanders fan. And then here you are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I haven't gotten to the end of the book. I'll let you know what he suggests. I think that um, the more people who... You know, I hope that the trend and more engagement leads to more fresh faces in politics. I think we need a new generation of politics. I think that hopefully it will um, lead to a different view of politicians and to a shift in the way people think about poli politics generally. But that's a slow process. Well, and I think a lot of fresh faces in politics is fantastic. The way that campaigns are funded is really difficult. 
I also think technology. So we had someone on Twitter today say something really interesting about how technology will probably erode the political parties and maybe politics altogether. And I think that's farther than oh, I would that's go. Interesting. I, but I thought it was really interesting and it's something to chew on. So you think to yourself, gosh, you know, social media really does empower people to come out of nowhere. I mean, if you even think about our podcast, I would never have imagined that we would be able to reach the number and caliber of people that we reach without, you know, the kind of infrastructure behind us that other podcasts have. But we can because social media is amazing in some ways. But then you also see the dark side of social media when you talk about what happened with fake news during our election, when you see what's happening in France and other places around the world. So I don't know if technology is an answer or if it's just a different question. My sense is it's probably just a different question. I mean, I think that's really, as much as I love technology, I'm really coming down firm on the side of usually it creates more problems than it solves, or at least sort of exposes more problems than maybe we realize, which I think could be the case here. I think that the Clinton campaign in a lot of ways was sort of the last gasp of a, of a different approach to, or maybe symptomatic of bigger changes underway, right? Like things are I think we all feel the ground shifting a little bit underneath our feet with regards to politics and how things I mean, you don't get any bigger shift or change than Donald Trump. And I think that Hillary Clinton was qualified and her campaign in a lot of ways was trying to do everything right. I also am starting to become more and more of a of a disciple of. Alan, and I can't think of his last name, the guy who does like the seven factors. And if these seven factors are here, the incumbent party is not going to keep the White House sort of. That I think professor I, who you, predicted the result here. Lichtman, isn't his last name Lichtman? I think that, you know, it's it, it's like what Harry Entman said on the 538 podcast of the election, all politics is cyclical. And so we can, you know, beat up Hillary Clinton and her staffers. But there were, you know, sort of bigger forces that have played out in American politics since the beginning that were coming into play here and they're still going to be true even if that it seems like the stakes are getting so much higher you know it didn't feel like such a big shift a cyclical shift when we went from george bush to bill clinton and it feels much bigger when we go from barack obama to donald trump but i don't know i think those those cyclical movements are still going to play out well and i think a lot of what underlies those cyclical movements is that the economy is more of a driving force for voters than any sort of adherence to ideology. And and we're having two parties still battle things out as though ideology is the motivator, which seems right. to me to be the result of the fact that the only people who consistently pay attention and consistently write checks and show up at things are the people who are actually motivated by ideology. But the vast majority of people are not. Where well, and I think it was still this. I, I don't know why, because it seems like Barack Obama got it so deeply. And I think that people still a lot of people, not just people in Washington, D.C., people I talk to think that voting is about logic and it's about, well, what policies benefit me and I will vote that way. No, it doesn't work mm-hmm. like that. It's emotional and for better, for worse and sort of ironic, considering she was the first female candidate of a major presidential party. Uh, the emotional part just was so difficult with her. and. For some people, I guess. And I, I have obviously deep emotions connected to Hillary Clinton. But, you know, it's not about let me show you, you know, I'm such a good candidate and I'm so prepared. Let me show you on paper. It's about how do you make me feel? Well, the other side of things on the Republican Party, I mean, my disconnect is always the emotional side. I have a lot of agreement with the things I read in conservative publications. The attitude of those pieces drives me crazy. The tone of it makes me insane. I was reading something about Bill O'Reilly's influence in the party, and Hugh Hewitt was trying to be dismissive of Bill Bill O'Reilly's impact. And my comment was, ideologically, did Bill O'Reilly have much of an impact? No. But emotionally, he absolutely did. The attitude that he created around the Republican Party permeates everything now in a lot of ways, right? You have, you can't watch anything on Fox News without just getting kind of riled up, right? And whether that's riled up with them or against them, the emotional result is anger. 
And that's a lot of what the Republican Party has become about, anger and obstruction. We can't just say, gosh, I'm really concerned about free speech on college campuses. We have to say college campuses are full of liberal haters of the First Amendment who can't stand Republicans, right? And I think that tone has ripple effects that are going to be felt for a very long time after Bill O'Reilly is out of his seat. And and you're right, you know, emotion is much more at the root of where people are than any kind of ideology. Yeah. Well, my emotion about the shattered book is really sad. I don't want, you know, and I think it's unfair in a lot of ways because it's not like they couldn't have written, somebody couldn't, and maybe still will write a salacious postmortem of the Trump campaign. You know, it's not like this was all. Oh, they will. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, so it's a little unfair. I'm defensive of my girl. I'm defensive of many of my friends who still work on that, who worked on that campaign. I feel particularly bad for Huma, but. It is what it is. I think it's a, I just think it's a mistake for any of us to get wrapped up in that side of it because that side is going to be present in any look. If you've done any kind of human resources work ever, (laughs) organizations of any variety have people issues. They just all do. And they have leadership issues. It is hard to be a great executive of anything and no one's perfect at it. And so, Yeah, it's interesting and it's a story to get wrapped up in, but it doesn't tell us anything about the future. And so that's I hope that that's what we can all focus on as we read what I'm sure will be lots of these. And I'm sure there will be, you know, movies about it. And and I'll watch all of them because that's a lot of what we do. And I I like to learn about these characters because we will see Robbie Mook again. Right. It's it's good to have a little bit more perspective on him. But I don't think we ought to judge the Clinton campaign or any other campaign by the gossipy elements, because people are just people. That's a good end point. People are just people. So next up in the heels, we're going to talk about what's on our mind outside of politics. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. 
That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, you had a big weekend. I did. My little sister got married this weekend. And I feel okay saying my little sister, even though she is certainly an adult now, because I am 12 years older than her and it's just the two of us. So as I shared at the wedding, Kimberly went to kindergarten when I went to college. <laughs> and um, oh my gosh. so we have just a really neat relationship and I'm delighted for her. And it was a fun weekend. It was a challenging weekend because both of my daughters were in the wedding and um, my daughter Ellen was particularly high maintenance this weekend. She took her diaper off during the rehearsal twice in the middle of the church. I said, I feel like that's probably like some sort of blessing on the marriage. I'm going to see it that way. I'm going to see her uh, refusal to walk down the aisle. She kept so she was supposed to be the flower girl, right? But she wouldn't walk with the other little girl. So she walked with me instead. And she kept like pulling her toes out of her sandals. So then she would fall down the aisle. <laughs> so I just picked her up. I held her for most of the ceremony. Um, you know, kids and weddings, like you just have to take what you get. And we did, but yeah. it was, it was great. I, did, I got really lucky. I'm about 10 years older than all my female younger cousins. So they were like totally like they weren't, were they as cute as Ellen? Probably not. Cause they were all like <laughs> 10. But they knew their gig, you know what I mean? Like, there was no, like, coaching them down the aisle. They walked down the aisle, they knew what they were supposed to do, and they were all very, very cute, so it was fine. I'll tell you what my sister did that I really respected and have thought a lot about. Uh, she and her husband are both musicians and music teachers and super talented. Instead of doing a first dance, they performed a song. He played the piano and she sang. And instead of her doing a first dance with my dad, she had our whole family sing at the reception. And she said she was explaining why she was doing that. And she said, listen, we don't dance. We're the people who make the music for other people to dance. And that's what we do. And it just didn't feel right to me to dance when that's not us. And I thought, I love that. And I think my little sister is much wiser than I am in a lot of ways, because she really is just very clear on like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. I do my thing. You do you, I'll do me. And I thought it was awesome. I dig it. I like it. What's on your mind? Well, you're still house I hunting, read, I know. Yeah, it's just still house hunting. I was going to try to talk about a book, but yeah, we could probably just talk about house hunting because that's all I can think about. I found this like great house. I thought I found a great house. Um, Then that was too small. Then I found this giant house in my budget. I was so excited. It was under contract. And I really just want to cry because it feels like I'm never going to find a house. I know this is so much on your mind because I feel like every time I text you about something related to scheduling or uh, like a boring administrative part of doing the podcast, I always ask about the house and then I get a response about the house and then I'll be like, so any thoughts on scheduling? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's hard it's when you so have your hopes up. Yeah. It's so frustrating. I want to be, but my really very good friend McCall was like, look, do not get in a hurry. You will settle for a house. You will not be happy in. And I was like, I want to believe you. Can you pet? Can you text that to me every morning? <laughs> it's very true. But I, I have a very exciting week coming up. I'm taking my husband has a conference in new Orleans. So send me all your New Orleans recs with kids because I'm taking my seven-year-old and five-year-old with me. We're going to go to New Orleans on our plane tickets for Hillary Clinton's inauguration that never happened. So we're going to uh, New Orleans. I'm really excited about it. We're going to do some tours and I'm going to get to go to the Whitney Plantation, which I've wanted to go to since they wrote it up in the New York Times. I hope I don't traumatize my kids too badly, but I'm going anyway. And um, 
So that is something exciting around the corner. And I'm trying not to be house obsessed, but it's just so hard when you're in that mode. It's just so hard. Well, that's exciting about New Orleans. So we're both out of town this week, which reminds me to say again, we have a really awesome group of people coming together to get together in Washington, D.C. for dinner on Wednesday. So if you want to go, email me, Beth at PantsyPoliticsShow.com, and I will see you in D.C. next week. So both of us on the road. Hopefully we'll have an interesting Instagram feed while we're gone. <laughs> so follow along on our Instagram feed. We'll see you on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you to our producer, Nicholas Holland, and to our chief creative officer, Dante Lima, for all the work they do to make Pantsuit Politics possible, and to all of you for making this community so special. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics, or Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Please leave us your feedback and send us your ideas for show topics and Pantsuit Primers on social media, or you can email us at sarah at or beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. 